Would you open up with me this morning to the book of Exodus and chapter 7? The book of Exodus and chapter 7. As you are turning to that passage, let me ask you whether or not you got pinched this past Tuesday. Because I did. I forgot that it was St. Patrick's Day and put on my clothes and had nothing green on and I used a marker and put a little green dot on my hand, but most of the kids I was around that day didn't find that as acceptable enough, and I was still pinched. Of course, the tradition is if you, if you don't wear green on St. Patrick's Day, then you get pinched. Uh, in the providence of God, it just so happens that, that our passage this morning is, an about, is about an event that is in some ways similar to the kinds of things that Patrick experienced as a missionary in Ireland. Uh, You may remember that Patrick was a Christian Englishman in the 400s. His father was affluent, uh, well off, but he was also a faithful man, a deacon in his church there in what we now know as England. At around age 16, Patrick was kidnapped And uh, he was taken by raiders from Ireland to that country where he was made to serve as a slave. Uh, Patrick writes that he was there for six years, uh, where he was tending to animals, uh, often afflicted with hunger and with thirst and with loneliness. And it was in these years as a slave that the faith of his parents began to become his own faith. As he cried out to God. Years later, he was able to return to Ireland no longer as a slave, but now as a missionary. Uh, Ireland at that time was considered a savage, a scary place. And that was largely due to a group of people called the Druids. Druidism was a Celtic religion that seemed to have been greatly influenced by demonic power. And so, for example, the priests of the Druids performed human sacrifices. Uh, There are many, many stories of these Druid priests performing supernatural and very cruel acts. And these Druid high priests held tight control over the land so that the people lived in fear of them. When Patrick came to Ireland preaching the gospel, these priests worked quickly to see him put to death. However, again and again, they found their plots against Patrick frustrated. Uh, It became obvious to them that Patrick was being protected by a power greater than they possessed. Uh, Patrick wrote during this time, he said, Daily I expect murder, fraud, or captivity. But I fear none of these things because of the promises of heaven. He said, I have cast myself into the hands of God Almighty who rules everywhere. It mattered to Patrick that his God was a God who ruled everywhere because at that time Ireland was considered to be the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, Patrick loved to quote Matthew 24, 14 where Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all the peoples of the world, and then the end will come. 
And Patrick believed that he was bringing about the coming of Jesus Christ because he believed he was preaching to people who were at the far reaches of the globe. He, he didn't know about the Americas. He didn't know that there were peoples beyond Ireland to the west. He thought he was reaching some of the last unreached peoples on earth. Now, there are many, many stories about Patrick's confrontations with the Druids. And yes, there's certainly some legend mixed in with historical fact. But the evidence does seem to suggest that the Druids really were involved in some dark, demonic, supernatural activity. And the evidence also suggests that the people of Ireland came to Christianity because God did some miraculous works through Patrick that were greater than those of the Druids. Uh, In Ireland, what we had was a confrontation between God and Satan, good and evil. Uh, The power of God versus the power of the Druids, and the power of God proved to be superior. So just to give you one such story, at the town of Tara. Patrick challenged the Druids to a contest. The Druids cried out to their chief god, Baal. By the way, isn't it interesting that the chief god of the Druids was Baal, the same chief god that the Canaanites had worshipped, the same false god that Israel was constantly being tempted to worship in the Old Testament. Well, through dark powers, we are told that the Druids were able to bring a dark fog across the land of Ireland. But then Patrick prayed to his God, and the fog suddenly cleared, and the sun shone brightly on the land. We're told that the local Irish chieftain ordered 27 chariots to go and to seize Patrick. But Patrick prayed aloud, May God come upon to scatter his enemies, and may those who hate him flee from his face. And we're told that once Patrick stopped praying, the charioteers fell down dead. We're then told that Patrick said to the chieftain, If you do not believe me now, you will die on the spot. For the wrath of God now descends upon your head. And according to the story, the man fell on his knees before Patrick and declared not only his own allegiance, but the allegiance of his realm to the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think when you hear a story like that? Do you assume that because it contains the supernatural, That because it contains the miraculous, it cannot be true. Or could it be that there are forces at work in this world that you and I cannot see, but which are greater than we can comprehend? Could it be, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here in Exodus, we are going to see another confrontation. And A.W. Pink says this. He says, from chapter 7 onwards, there is a marked change. Moses is no more timid, hesitant, and discouraged The omnipotence of the Lord is displayed in every scene. 
The conflict from this point onwards is not one of words, but of deeds. The gauntlet had been thrown down, and now it is open war between the Almighty and the Egyptians. It hardly needs to be pointed out that what is before us in these early chapters of Exodus is something more than a mere episode of ancient history, something more than what was simply of local interest. A thrilling drama is unfolded to our view, and though its movements are swift, yet is there sufficient detail and repetition in principle for us to discern clearly its great design. It spreads before us in vivid detail the great conflict between good and evil. Now this first confrontation that we're about to see is like the battle of Fort Sumter where the first shots of the Civil War were fired. Nothing is going to be decided in this first confrontation. But it is here that the real war between God and Pharaoh, God and the false gods of Egypt, God and the devil, it's here that this conflict really begins in the Exodus account. So let's read what happens beginning in verse 8. Exodus 7, beginning in verse 8. And this is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said. So I want to unpack this passage with three questions. Three questions and then two points of application. Three questions, two points of application. Here's our first question. Why did God choose for Moses to perform this miracle? Pharaoh called on Moses to perform some miracle a miracle, to show that he should even pay attention to the supposed God of Moses. Pharaoh wants some sign from Moses that the God he represents even exists. He calls for a miracle. And Moses, in obedience to God, performs this miracle. Aaron casts down the staff and it becomes a serpent. Uh, The staff is sometimes called the staff of God. Other times it's called the staff of Moses. Other times it's called the staff of Aaron. But it's the same staff. It's the staff that God set apart for this work back in Exodus 4 at the burning bush. Why did God choose for Moses and Aaron to perform this miracle? And if you'll remember what we've already seen, then the answer should be fairly easy. This miracle is a direct attack on the authority and power of Pharaoh. Remember, on the day of coronation, when a man was crowned Pharaoh and king of Egypt, he was given a special rod with a crook at the top. 
And the giving of this rod was said to signify the power of deity being given to the Pharaoh. As the possessor of that rod, the Pharaoh was said to be no longer just a man. This man now had the power and the status of a god. That's what the Egyptians believed. In particular, there was an Egyptian god called Osiris. And the Pharaoh's staff, with the crook at the top, was said to have the power and the authority of Osiris. Osiris was the god of the afterlife, the god of the underworld, the god who held the fate of the dead in his hands. And so if what you desired most was a happy afterlife, Osiris was the god you wanted to please. And since Pharaoh carried the staff of Osiris, your eternal happiness depended on your obedience and your allegiance to the Pharaoh. We saw back in November that the Egyptians wholeheartedly believed that the staff of Pharaoh was magical and could perform wonders. Then, on top of all this, there was the fact that the Egyptians held serpents, and especially the desert cobra, in very high regard. Uh, The cobra was seen as a symbol of power and authority. The cobra was a symbol of beauty and yet deadly violence. And the Pharaoh wore this symbol of a serpent, of a cobra, on his forehead. It was right there on his headdress, right above his brow. And so both the staff and the serpent are symbols of power and authority. And in this miracle, a simple shepherd's staff, the staff of Moses and Aaron, proves greater than all the lavish religious staffs of Pharaoh's wise men. Indeed, the serpent of Moses and Aaron proves greater than the serpents of the priest, as their serpent swallows theirs. That is the significance of this miracle, to say to Pharaoh, not only that Yahweh exists, but that Yahweh is superior to every other god. Indeed, all the demonic powers of Satan cannot compare with the power of Almighty God. So that's question one. Question two, how did these magicians turn their rods into serpents? Have you ever wondered about that? How did these magicians turn their rods into serpents? Um, We know how the rod of Moses was turned into a serpent. God did that. But how did the magicians of Pharaoh turn their rods into serpents? And the theories abound. One common theory is that this was simply a magic trick. Uh, The problem in our day is we hear the word magicians, and we hear that in terms of modern magicians who are uh, illusionists, deceivers, tricksters, right? And so one common theory is that the magicians didn't actually turn their staffs into serpents. They performed a David Copperfield, David Blaine type of illusion. So for example, one common theory says that these Egyptian priests were so good at snake charming that they were able to charm the snakes into lying straight and stiff like a staff. And thus, when the priests entered with their staffs, their staffs were actually serpents the whole time, but that the staffs only curled and proved to be snakes when they were thrown to the ground. 
Now, obviously that theory assumes that the priest knew going in what it was that they were called to do and what was going to happen. Another theory says that this was a sleight of hand magic trick and that by misdirection, the magicians were able to take their staffs and hide them and pull serpents out of their cloaks and and make the quick exchange. Of course, any of these theories have to explain how the serpents of the priest could be eaten by the serpent Moses and Aaron. I find those theories about magic tricks to be a little bit unbelievable. But I think that the fatal blow to them is that one Hebrew word in verse 11. Because in verse 11, we are told in the ESV that the magicians did the same as Aaron had done. And the Hebrew word used there is the word keen. And it literally means in the same way, in like manner. Uh, The King James Version, for example, says the magicians did in like manner with their enchantments. In other words, however Aaron's rod became a serpent, in the same way the magician's rods became serpents. And so unless Aaron's miracle was really just a trick, I don't think it's right for us to say that the magician's miracles were really just tricks. No, the magicians, like Aaron, actually transformed their staffs into serpents. But by what power? It was Aaron's God who transformed his staff. But what about these magicians? Some have suggested that the rods of the magicians were transformed by God himself and that even the magicians were surprised when it happened. These people suggest that the magicians knew that they couldn't match Aaron's miracle, but they were not willing to say so. They were afraid for their lives, and so they threw their staffs down as Pharaoh commanded, and then to their great surprise, because the true God was intent on hardening Pharaoh's heart, the true God transformed the magician's staffs into serpents. So that's one theory. Again, I I find that to be a stretch, and I, I don't think that's what the passage itself suggests. I think the right answer is the most obvious one. These wise men, also called magicians, also called sorcerers, were representing the gods of Egypt. And in the power of those gods, they performed this sign. Yes, it is true that the gods of Egypt were false gods. But remember, the worship of pagan gods is in fact the worship of demons, Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17 makes this connection for us. Talking about Israel's idolatry, talking about Israel's worship of false gods, here is what Moses says there. He says, They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations that they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And so while the gods these magicians represented were not gods at all, they were in fact spirits, demonic powers. And we must not forget that Satan and his forces do have great power. We remember how Satan had the power to transport himself and Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Or how the devil caused all the kingdoms of the world to pass before the eyes of Jesus. Deuteronomy 13, 
warns of prophets who come in the name of God, performing signs and wonders, and yet prove to be false prophets. 2 Thessalonians talks about the lawless one, the Antichrist who comes by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Mount Hermon, I would simply ask you, are you willing to come to grip with this reality? With all of our sophistication, with all of our advancement in knowledge, with all of our great technology, are we still willing to acknowledge what is plainly taught in Scripture? That there are real demonic forces at work in this world today. If you are not aware of this, if you do not believe this, then you are right where the devil wants you to be. If you are suspicious of this teaching, if you feel that talk of demonic forces in the world is ignorant talk, primitive talk, not in keeping with our modern times, then you have fallen prey to the devil's very scheme. The most genius thing the devil ever did was to try to convince people that he doesn't exist. Indeed, he would have us believe that nothing spiritual exists. In our modern day, we're, we're told to be skeptical of all things supernatural, even our very souls. I read some months ago about a new satanic temple that was being opened in the city of Detroit. And the article said this, it says, The satanic temple today marks the launch of its first chapter outside of New York. But leaders say they don't worship Satan. And they don't practice cannibalism, and they don't sacrifice people or animals. No, it's peaceful, said Jex Blackmore, 32, local leader and part of the temple's executive ministry. The idea of sacrifice specifically is to appease some demon or some god, and that's a supernatural belief that we don't subscribe to. The group's tenets include free will, compassion towards all creatures, and respect of others' freedom, including the freedom to offend, and beliefs supported by scientific understanding. Quote, we should, never take, we should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit our beliefs, says the Satanic Temple's website. So did you hear that? Modern Satanists say they no longer believe in the supernatural. They want their beliefs to be supported by scientific understanding. Church, I can assure you that this is not what Satanists believed in past decades and centuries, but it does represent the devil's strategy in recent days. It appears his strategy here in our land is to use our human hubris, which thinks that it knows more than it does, to deny the supernatural. When people are ready to deny the supernatural, including God, Satan, angels, demons, our very souls, well, then Satan has already won the battle. Uh, we are told in the book of Ephesians that we are to put on the whole armor of God. Why? That we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul assumes that we understand that we are in a spiritual war. We're told not to be ignorant of the devil's schemes. Third question. Third question. Who were these magicians? Who were these magicians? 
Who were these wise men, these sorcerers representing Egypt's gods who performed this miracle? You might wonder why we even ask that question. Well, I'm asking that question because surprisingly, the Bible gives us an answer. The Bible even gives us their names. Did you know that? It gives us their names. All the way at the other end of your Bible. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is speaking about these people in the last days who have the appearance of godliness, but not its power. These are people who profess faith, but don't possess faith. And they use Christianity as a way of taking advantage of people and pursuing their own sinful pleasures. And in that context, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses... So also these men opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So how in the world, a millennium and a half later, does Paul know the names of at least two of these Egyptian magicians? Well, the answer is that the names of these men were recorded in several ancient documents. Um, maybe Janus and Jambres were in fact their real names, or maybe these were names that were given to them some years later, we don't know. Uh, The early church father Origen tells us that in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so in the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, there was a book that arose that was called the Book of Janus and Jambres, and it told the story of these Egyptian magicians. Certainly by the time of the New Testament, by the time that Jesus was walking the earth, by the time of the apostles, these were the two names by which these magicians were known, Janus and Jambres. And Paul was confident that Timothy would know who he was talking about. The point that Paul makes in 2 Timothy 3 is this. Just as these men opposed Moses rising up against true religion, so there will be men in our day who will rise up against the truth and they will seek to say to the world whatever christianity claims it can do for you we can do it too we can do it better right Um, i think about men like richard dawkins atheistic evolutionary thinkers who travel around saying that they have found the the same or even a deeper better kind of peace a deeper better kind of joy than christianity can ever bring um you know, Richard Dawkins travels around talking about how his godless view of the world, believing that, that chaos and, and, and randomness is all there is, he says there's something very satisfying about that. And he tries to argue that atheistic evolutionary belief is, is more satisfying to you than Christianity. Just embrace the wonder of a universe without any God at all, in all of its randomness, and you can find true peace. That's his message. And if those kind of secular leaders are like Janus, then, then certainly false religions like Islam are, are Jambres, rising up and claiming to be the true religion. But remember, the serpent of Moses and Aaron swallowed, the whole, swallowed whole the serpents of the magicians. And Pharaoh saw it, but yet he still would not believe So, with those three questions having been asked to help us unpack the passage, let's bring all this together with two points of application for us. 
Two points of application for us. Number one, let us remember the reality of demonic activity and be on guard. This may be something that we have not preached on enough in this church. Um, In our modern day, it's just a subject that we tend to avoid. And certainly it is wrong to become obsessed or too focused on the devil and demonic forces and dark things. We don't want that to to begin to to, to be uh, something of major importance to us. But we do need to be aware of the devil and his schemes. We want to be watchful. We want to be sober-minded. We need to be careful never to treat the devil and his forces as weak or inconsequential. Yes, our God is sovereign. Yes, the devil is no match for Jesus Christ. But the devil is more than a match for us. And if we are not drawing our strength from Christ, we are easy prey for him. Here in America, uh, because the devil's strategy of late seems to be one of secularism and scientism and convincing us that the spiritual world doesn't exist, we do seem to be hearing less about the occult than we did especially in the the, the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, But the danger of the occult is still very real. Uh, One thing Crystal and I have reminded our boys again and again as they were reading through the Harry Potter books is that in the real world, there is no such thing as a good witch. Um, The Wizard of Oz is wrong when it presents us with, yes, the Wicked Witch of the West, but also Glinda, the the Good Witch of the South. The Scriptures give us very strong statements about every kind of witchcraft. All are said to be an abomination to God. There's no such thing as good witches. There have been in recent days, in some circles, a revival of Wiccan practices, even a revival of Druidism, like Patrick encountered in Ireland so long ago. Uh, Many of the folks who call themselves Wiccans are actually looking back towards that same period of Druidism uh, that we were describing at the beginning of this message. Certainly there are those today who participate in astrology, alchemy, fortune-telling, divination, and voodoo. And we must be clear that all of these things are dangerous. And that when people dive into these things, they are messing with powerful forces that they cannot truly understand. These things are evil And we are not to treat them as harmless pastimes or as interesting hobbies. So as Christians, don't be ignorant of the devil and demons and their schemes. But then there's our second application, and it's this. Let us never forget the superior power of our God. Because the whole point of Moses' simple shepherd's staff being turned into a serpent, and the whole point of his serpent swallowing the others whole was to proclaim boldly that Yahweh is Almighty God, He is all-powerful, and He has no competition. And so listen to Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, God's power is like Himself, self-existent and self-sustained. The mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. 
He sits on no buttressed throne. He leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. So dear, dear friend, are you looking to the power of God for your life? Where are you finding the strength you need to face the trials of your life? What resources are you drawing from to stay loving and patient and kind when you feel hurt or burdened or weary? Where is your power to defeat temptation? Where is your power to be courageous in the face of looming persecution? This passage is a reminder to us that we are to look to nowhere but to God himself for strength. As Paul would later say, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. As we believe the word of God by faith, as we hold fast to God's word, the power of God works in us and sustains us. It is through faith in what God has said that Christ's strength comes to us and does mighty things in our lives. Mount Hermon, where are we looking for the power to see people converted among us? Where are we looking for the strength to be a light in this community and to see people being saved and sanctified in our midst? We must never look to our own strength. We must never look to human cunning or to human programs or to human techniques. We are to look instead to the power of God Himself. Let us pray for God's saving power to be at work among us. In our worship, we need God's Spirit energizing our hearts. In our prayers, we need God's power inclining our hearts towards earnestness and eagerness in prayer. In the preaching, we need the Spirit of God to do what this poor preacher cannot, to convict sinners and to show them the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we leave this place to fulfill our callings and to be witnesses to others, we need God's power to be faithful and defective and to see real fruit. On the other side of the Red Sea, having been saved and delivered from the Egyptians, we're going to hear the people of Israel sing this song in Exodus 15, verse 2. They're going to sing, The Lord is my strength and my song." And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is my strength, is what they will sing. And if we are Christians, then God is to be our strength too. As we trust God's word, he gives us strength as individuals. And as we trust God's word as individuals, he gives us strength as a church. Because together we make up the body. And so I close with these words from Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us find our strength and our power in God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we are so grateful for this reminder that while the forces of darkness are real, forces of darkness are true nevertheless we worship a God who is mightier than they and that as long as we are trusting in you we are safe and we are secure father help us not to be ignorant of the devil and his schemes but father also help us never to be ignorant of your almighty power and how nothing can stand against you and nothing Nothing can destroy your sovereign will. Father, we ask that you would help us to trust you even when things in our life look crazy or scary or just unknown. Help us to know that you are good and that you will fulfill every promise you've made to us. Father, help us to believe these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.